0: Open up your Bibles. We're going to do it a little out of order tonight, if that's okay with you. We'll get to communion after teaching. But we're in Joshua chapter 21. Joshua 21. And I'm gonna just hold it to uh, two chapters tonight. Joshua 21. Nice thing about, being a nearly 20-year-old church, is uh, people go, wow, you need two whole chapters in one night? Yep, and if you don't like it, tough. And if you like it, you're in the right place, right? Do you like it? Yes. Okay, that's that's what I wanna hear. Joshua 21, now we're actually gonna move quite quickly through at least this first chapter because, again, a lot of names, a lot of uh land allotments that are being given, specifically this time to Levi. But let's jump right in. Chapter 21, verse one, then the heads of the households of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Remember all the way up until now, up till chapter 20, all the allotments for all 12 tribes, sons Levi, have been given out. So now in chapter 20, as we saw Sunday, the sixth cities of refuge that are Levitical priestly cities are called out first, and then we're gonna get into now all 48 of those cities and six of those are the cities of refuge, as you'll see. So the heads of the households of the Levites, they come now to the high priest Eliezer, to Joshua, to the heads of the other tribes. And verse two, they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, the Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance, these cities, with their pasture lands, according to the command of the Lord. Then the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites, and the sons of Aaron the priest, who were of the Levites, received 13 cities by lot. Note that these are all by lot. Lot is cast or or somehow decided. We don't know, as I've said recently, exactly how they cast the lot, but these are decided by lot from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of the Shimonites and from the tribe of Benjamin. The rest of the sons of Kohath received 10 cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Ephraim and from the tribe of Dan and from the half tribe of Manasseh. The sons of Gershon received 13 cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher and from the tribe of Naphtali and from the half tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. That's over on the eastern side of the Jordan. The sons of Merari, according to their families, received 12 cities from the tribe of Reuben and from the tribe of Gad and from the tribe of Zebulun. So all of these are handed out. Note, it's interesting, Levi's the last tribe to receive their land by lot. And I think that's appropriate because when you are a priest, you come last. You're there to serve others. Royal priesthood. We put others first. That's the whole pattern of the church. That's the pattern that Jesus laid in. That's even seen here, the high priestly pattern is though we have a high priest and we've got the priestly lineage, they're the last ones. That's a right attitude for a royal priest to have. But the introduction of these 48 priestly cities includes, you you probably heard the phrase, pasture lands, pasture lands. Now they don't get allotments of land, large swaths of land in the country, they get pasture lands, however, and that's literally outskirts. So the way it worked is every one of these 48 cities had land that was measured off 500 cubic yards around the city, and that was the pasture land that belonged then to that Levitical group in that city. So they could plant you know, flower gardens or veggies or fruit gardens or have their cattle out there, whatever, but they had at least a little bit of land surrounding the city that was the pasture land or outskirts. It's very organized here. You'll notice in verse four, six, and seven, we see how the the tribes within the tribe are called out. There are actually three different family units within Levi, we've seen these before, Kohath, and within Kohath is the Aaronite group, so the sons of Aaron, but they are also Kohathites, but they're Aaronites specifically within Kohath. And then there's Gershon, which you see there in verse six, and then the sons of Merari, so the Kohathites, The Gershonites and the Merarites are the three separate uh, designations of the tribe of Levi. And so the land is given to them in in that order. But this is fascinating to me. And I was thinking about this again this week and I wanted to bring this up. We've, We've talked about this before, but many of you may not have heard this. There's a fascinating book came out in, oh, let's see, 2002, somewhere early 2000s. And it's written by a rabbi named Yaakov Kleiman. Rabbi Ya-Klo- ya- Yaakov Kleiman in Israel. I picked it up when we were in Israel. And the book is called DNA and Tradition. The subtitle is The Genetic Link to the Ancient Hebrews. And this its absolutely fascinating. What Kleiman does in this book, they did some pretty intensive genetic research via molecular profiles and the research proved certain things. Number one, it proved that the Jewish people had their origination in the Middle East. So no question about where the Jews began, where they started off, they are a Middle Eastern people. They were historically, and so being back there now since 1948 as a nation, that is where they are from, where they originated. They were able to check this by genetic profiling. Secondly, the current Kohanim, have you ever known anyone whose last name was Kohen, right? If you hear of someone whose last name is Kohen, they are probably very likely of the Kohathites of the tribe of Levi. But for a long time, all you could do is base that on tradition. Oh yeah, Uh, Kohen, that guy, he's, he's got Levitical blood in him, so if there ever is a priesthood again, maybe he could be one of those. But it was tradition until they started doing these studies. And they discovered the current Kohanim, have a common ancestor in Kohath. I mean, running all the way back to Kohath and to Levi, there is a genetic link that runs all the way back. And even more than that, modern Jewish men trace back to an ancient recognizable genetic signature. That is the Kohathites, the people who are men of Kohen now, if they're legitimately Kohen, the Y chromosome has a genetic signature on it that is unique to Kohen unique to the priestly tribe and to literally that, that arm of the priestly tribe of Levi. Amazing. So God knows where his people are. And God even marks his people for future uh, ministry. Kleiman in his book says, the diaspora continues to lose its population. That's the dispersion of the Jews all over the world, continues to lose its population while the numbers of Jews in Israel is on a constant increase. Demographers, he says, predict that in 50 years, the majority of world Jewry will live in Israel. Now, what's great about that, he said that 20 years ago. In 50 years, the majority will live in Israel. Well, the numbers, as of 2022, there are 14.7 million Jews in the world, worldwide. 7.8 million live in Israel. So we're right at the halfway point. It's not gonna take 50 years for the majority of Jews to be back in the land. They are going back and continue to go back in droves. And my friends, that is prophetic. That's like front edge. You wanna talk about a wave. There's a Jewish wave headed back to Israel. Forget about red waves or blue waves or purple waves or no waves. It's, It's the Jews going back into the land. And as of even today, more are living in the land than anywhere else in the world. The next closest population number of Jews is America, around 5 million. 7.08 million are now in Israel. It was not that way, in fact, until very recently as Jewish people are going home. So they're going home. We know who the, who the Kohens are, the Kohathites, the Kohanim, if you will. And now we get to see their land allotments, at least as was given to them 3,000 years ago. So Joshua 21, verse eight, continuing forward. Now the sons of Israel, and, and buckle up, we're going all the way through. The sons of Israel gave by lot, note that again, by lot to the Levites, these cities with their pasture lands as the Lord had commanded through Moses. They gave these cities, which are here mentioned by name from the tribe of the sons of Judah, from the tribe of the sons of Shimon, and they are for the sons of Aaron, one of the families of the Kohathites, so that's the Aaronic or the Aaronite family, of the sons of Levi, for the lot was theirs first. Verse 11, they gave them Cariath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron in the hill country of Judah, with its surrounding pasture lands. But the fields of that city and of the villages they gave to Caleb the son of Yefunah, as his possession, because remember, Caleb's out there fighting giants. Verse 13, so to the sons of Aaron, the priests, they gave Hebron, the city of refuge, that's the first city of refuge for the manslayer, with its pasture lands, and Libna with its pasture lands, and Jatir with its pasture lands, and Eshtemoa, and Holon, and Ain, and Jutah, verse 16, and Beth Shemesh with its pasture lands, nine cities from these two tribes, that is from Judah and Shimon. From the tribe of Benjamin, verse 17, Gabeon with its pasture lands, and Giba and Anatot and Almon, And they were four cities, and so verse 19 sums it up. All the cities of the sons of Aaron, the priests, were 13 cities with their pasture lands. And keep that in mind, the Aaronite priesthood got cities in Judah, Shimon, and Benjamin. Mark that, I'm gonna come back to it in just a second. Verse 20. Then the cities from the tribe of Ephraim were allotted to the families of the sons of Kohat. This is the rest of the Kohathites, the Levites, to the rest of the sons of Kohat. They gave them Shechem, city of refuge for the manslayer. There's the second city of refuge. With its pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim and Gezer with its pasture lands. And that's where again, they had the old folks home. And Gibzaim with its pasture lands. You know, if it's funny one time, as far as I'm concerned, it's funny every time. They give him Beth Horon with his pasture lands, four cities from the tribe of Dan. Elteke with its pasture lands, Gibbeton, Eijalon. Got Ramon, verse 24. From the half tribe of Manasseh, verse 25, Tayanach. Got Ramon, two cities. And all the cities with their pasture lands for the families of the rest of the sons of Kohat were ten. So the Aaronites get thirteen cities. The rest of the sons of Kohat get ten more cities, verse 27. To the sons of Gershon one of the families of the Levites, they gave from the half-tribe of Manasseh, Golan and Bashan, the city of refuge for the manslayer, third city of refuge right there, with its pasture lands in Beeshterah, and the two cities from the tribe of Issachar, Kishion and Dabarat and Yarmut in Ganim, four cities, verse 30, from the tribe of Asher, Mishal with its pasture lands, Abdon, Helkat, Rehob, Four cities, I'm not repeating with its pasture lands because every city gets that, right? And then verse 32, from the tribe of Naphtali, Kadesh in Galilee, the city of refuge for the manslayer. That's number four. With its pasture lands, Hamat Dor and Kartan, three cities. All the cities of the Gershonites now, verse 33, according to their families were 13 cities with their pasture lands. To the families of the sons of Merari. So these are the Merarites. The rest of the Levites they gave from the tribe of Zebulun, Jokneam and Kartah. Verse 35, Dimna, Nahalal. Verse 36, from the tribe of Reuben, they gave Betzer with its pasture lands. Betzer, you may recall, is the fifth city of refuge. Kedemot, Mephiat, Verse 38, from the tribe of Gad, they gave Ramot and Galad, city of refuge for the manslayer, and that's number six. With its pasture lands, Mahanaim, Verse 39, Heshbon, Yatzer, four cities in all, and all these were the cities of the sons of Merari, according to their families. The rest of the families of the Levites and their lot was 12 cities. I'm not sure we've done 40 verses faster than that. But here are some things to note as you consider all of this. And let me finish out verse 41. All the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the sons of Israel were 48 cities, and you can add them up. With their pasture lands, these cities each had its surrounding pasture lands, thus it was with all these cities. Okay, first, the 13 cities that we saw given to the high priestly Aaronite family are in Judah, Shimon, and Benjamin. Why? Why were the Aaronite priests given those cities, especially since the tabernacle was at Shiloh and it's not... That close. I mean, it's not too far. The land's not that big overall. But from this, why would you put them over there? You'd think you'd put them right around Shiloh. But see, the Lord knew something. Judah, Shimon, Benjamin. If you look on a Bible map, this is the the territory immediately next to Jerusalem. So the Lord knew was looking ahead that in 369 years, the tabernacle would no longer be in Shiloh, but would be in his capital city, the city in which he chose to put his name, the place that he calls his city over all the cities of the earth, Jerusalem. So he goes ahead and stations the Aaronites there, right near Jerusalem, close to the the city of their ministry. Isaiah 46, verse nine says, remember the former things long past, I'm God. And there is no other God. And there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which had not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish my good pleasure. So he establishes the Aaronites right next to Jerusalem, knowing that's where they're going to be serving 369 years later. I love that. And I said earlier, Already that these were lots, that all of this land was, was given by lot. But remember, the lots were cast before the Lord. So every single one of these locations were God-ordained. God chose and told the people of Israel, this is where I want you, this is where you need to be. Aaronites, I want your cities, your 13 cities, right there in Judah, Benjamin, Shimon, next to Jerusalem. God was planning ahead. God always plans ahead. God alone can see ahead when we cannot. We try to make our plans, but you know the, the truth. It's not scripture, but it's very true. The best laid plans of mice and men will fail. God's plans never fail. So we get this great picture here of God looking ahead and establishing his high priesthood near Jerusalem, looking forward to the coming of the first kingdom under Saul and ultimately the kingdom of David. He's been cl- planning the coming kingdom much longer than that. Plans have been underway for more than 2,000 years. In fact, plans have been other underway since the beginning for the second iteration of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom that God is going to truly establish. And I'm excited to see that kingdom. But with all these cities, again, their lot, their allotment fell exactly as prophesied. Remember, Israel said in Genesis 49, verse seven, by the spirit of the Lord, he said, I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. But I remind you of the beautiful redemption of these priests, the redemption of Levi. Israel was cursing Levi, saying you're gonna be scattered. God redeems Levi, saying you're gonna be scattered. Same idea, in both cases scattered, but one is under a curse, but then God redeems the curse and now the scattered Levites are blessed because they're the priestly tribe. The Lord redeemed cursed Levi, not only to be blessed themselves, but to be a blessing to all of his people, Israel. This is what we were talking about Sunday with the cities of refuge, that we have the blessing of coming to Jesus Christ, our refuge, to the city of refuge. We also have the blessing of blessing others by becoming cities of refuge ourselves. And that's the way it works with the Lord. And, and if, you know, if you've walked very long with Jesus, you know it's not just receiving the blessing, but it's being the blessing. Man, that's where it's at. That is where it's at as followers of Jesus. That's a joyful priest, is one who knows he or she gets to be a blessing to other people, so just as the Lord came or, the, or Levi came to the Lord's side at Mount Sinai, they would be blessed to live and serve near to the Lord, but also they would be a blessing of ministry to all His people. Look at verse forty-three. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers. So now four hundred years before this, He promised this land, and now Joshua writes, He gave it and they possessed it and lived in it. Verse 44, and the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. You need to understand as we come to the waning chapters of Joshua, just a couple or three left, that everything is good. They're in the land. They're established in the land. Their enemies are no longer a threat in the land. God has fulfilled every good promise that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the people are there. And that's how Joshua concludes. And then we get into the book of Judges. Which I'm calling Guardians of the Unruly. That's our next study. Guardians of the unruly, we're gonna see the judges being called up by the Lord as the people just fall apart. But you need to understand prior to going into judges, it was all good. It was all good. You know, that's the reality. The reality is things begin orderly and become chaotic. That is scientific reality. We even recognize that in creation, in the laws of thermodynamics that you begin with order and then it descends into chaos. That's the big problem with evolutionary theory, by the way, is they say it began with chaos and somehow just became orderly. Try that with one of your teenage kids' rooms. (laughs) Okay, let's start with a complete mess and just see what happens. It'll get worse. You don't go from chaos to order, you go from order and sadly, humanity then descends into chaos. And so that's what we see. We end Joshua with beautiful order and then we descend into chaos, but his current promises. Think about this, if he fulfilled every one, verse 45 again, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass, what does that tell us of his current promises to us? They're gonna come to pass. Not a one of them will fail, my friends. And that is so encouraging, be assured. God keeps his word. And as much as I wanted one, and I just confessed this to you all, we don't need a red wave. We need a royal blue wave. Not a blue wave. We need a royal blue wave. That is a true blue faith in Jesus Christ wave of following and trust. Because we have what Paul said to Titus, Titus chapter one, verse two, the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ago. This is a stop on the journey. This whole issue with Israel and their example for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come, this is just a stop along the way where we see, okay, God went thus far. How we do? Perfect fulfillment of promise. So here are some more promises for you. Guess what he's going to do? Fulfill every single one. And until we see all fulfilled, just remember very simply, you and I were cursed By our sin, we were redeemed by Jesus Christ from the curse to be blessed and to be a blessing. We need a refuge and we need to be a refuge. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yeah, yeah, Rick, you quoted that Sunday. I can't quote that one enough. 1 Peter 2.9 is one of my favorite verses in all scripture because over and over, I wanna be reminded, even in my sometimes messes, even in my sometimes doubts, even in my sometimes struggles or faithlessness, I'm of a chosen race. I'm a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I'm part of a people who belong to God. One more question before we move on. How am I to be that refuge in this world? The refuge that we talked about, we need a refuge. We need to be a refuge. Okay, I, I, I wanna do that. And maybe you thought that. I'd like to be a refuge. I'd like to be a blessing to others. I'm just just—I'm not really sure how. I'm gonna give you the most simple way possibly to be a blessing, to be a refuge from, from home, to, to church, to community, to the world. We need not only be like Levi or like the Aaronite priesthood, we need to be like Zadok. And you might mark that down. Zahu, Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K, a name you probably should know because that's the kind of priesthood that I believe the God, that God has called believers into, a Zadokian priesthood. Okay, wait, so there's the priesthood of Aaron and then there's the, I know the priesthood of Melchizedek. I've heard about that one, Zadokian What is this about? Okay, listen, I said there is a genetic Y chromosome marker for all the Kohatites, for people who are called Kohen today, through the line of Aaron, a marker that confirms and validates their priestly lineage. And again, that's awesome. But you know what? It is not DNA by which God will determine those who serve him in the kingdom. It's not DNA. It's not even DNA that will determine future Levitical service in the holy place of the millennial temple. It is, in fact, faithfulness. It's always faithfulness. It always comes back to faith, you know? In spite of DNA markers, Jesus is only going to allow, and if you wanna jump over to Ezekiel 44, do that. Go to Ezekiel 44. Jesus will only allow the Zadokian priesthood to serve in the holy place. None of the rest of the Kohathites, none of the rest of the Aaronites, none of the rest of the the temple priests. And you, you may recall there's the high priestly line, but then within the Aaronites, there were the priests as well who were enabled to go into the holy place and they would serve the Lord at the table of showbread and at the altar of incense and keeping the lamps of the menorah lit. And then of course the high priest himself could go into the holy of holies once a year on Yom Kippur. And they served the internals. They got as close to God as anybody could get, as close to the Shekinah glory of God. But that was all of the Aaronites could could enter, not so in the millennial kingdom. This is fascinating to me. Ezekiel chapter 44, verse four. I mean, hey, since we move so quickly through chapter 21, let's do Ezekiel 44 too. Verse four, Ezekiel's talking and he says, he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the house. That is the temple, the bayit. And I looked and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And I fell on my face. That's what you do before the glory of God. The Lord said to me, son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the statutes of the house of the Lord and concerning all its laws and mark well the entrance of the house with with all its exits of the sanctuary. And you shall say to the rebellious ones, to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, enough of all your abominations, O house of Israel. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary, to profane it, my house, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, for they made my covenant void in addition to all your abominations. Note this, the covenant is the Mosaic covenant that was made void because that was the conditional one. We've said before, every other covenant of God is is unconditional. The Mosaic covenant, that is between the the Jewish people and, and God, the people of Israel, was a covenant that if you do these things, keep my law, you can live in the land and you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be booted from the land and you will be cursed. Mosaic covenant. And it's important to know that because people confuse it and they say, well, God is through with the Jew. No, he's through with the Mosaic covenant but he made a land covenant. He made the Abrahamic covenant. He made the Davidic covenant. He even made the new covenant. All of these covenants that God's gonna fulfill regardless of Israel and regardless of you and me. But that one covenant is made void because they profaned it. Verse nine, thus says the Lord God, no foreigner uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel shall enter my sanctuary. But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people and they shall stand before them to minister to them. By the way, yes, there will be a reinstatement of the sacrifices in the kingdom. Really? I thought Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. He is. Well, then why are we gonna have more sacrifices? Well, I'll let you think about that. Verse 12, because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord God, they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Speaking of Levi, the priestly tribe, they shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me nor come near to any of my holy things to the things that are most holy, but they will bear their shame and their abominations, which they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the house and all its service and all that shall be done in it. So what happens is now the holy place is barred because Levi went after all Israel into idolatry And God says, in in my future temple, and that's all of the end of Ezekiel is about the future millennial temple, in that temple, sorry, Levi, you will not serve the holy place. You will not go into the house. They they can serve at the altar of sacrifice, the bronze altar and the bronze laver, out in the courtyard. They can watch the gates and the bars and they can tend to the larger house, but they cannot enter into my presence in the house at that time, God says. There are, uh, you know, consequences to our choices. They're still there, you know? They're in the millennial kingdom. They're in the house. Hey, praise the Lord. They're gonna be thrilled just to be there, but they're gonna miss out on something more special. God is holding that. Watch this, for the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, verse 15. They kept charge of my sanctuary. When the sons of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me and minister to me. And they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. Wow. Now there's a sadness to that because the original promise to all Levi was that the Lord was their inheritance. But now there's a a restriction that's placed on that inheritance for the rest of the tribe. The Lord is still their inheritance. They can still serve, but they can't go all the way. And yet, and yet, Zadok, the sons of Zadok, those who trace the lineage to Zadok, they will continue to minister. Why? Because they remained faithful. Even when no one else was, even when their very own brothers in Levi were unfaithful, The line of Zadok held true and they will fully enjoy their inheritance in the Lord. If you draw back, we don't have time to do a lot of this, but historically speaking, Zadok was high priest of David. So in the kingdom of David, Zadok was his high priest at that time and he stood with David against rebellion Zadok is the one who was named by David to lead, and he was high priest, but to lead the priestly team that appropriately carried the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem on their shoulders joyfully. Zadok was the leader of that. His generations, the Bible indicates to us, kept the charge even when all of Levi abandoned the temple. The Zadokian priests were still there. I shared earlier today with our staff Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of them? And you're ministering in the temple and no one's coming to temple and you're showing up and you're doing the morning offering and the evening offering, but no one's there to see it and no one's bringing their peace offerings and no one's showing up on the high holy days, but you're doing your job and there is no immediate satisfaction for that job other than knowing you're doing what the Lord asked you to do. And by the way, that's highly satisfying, but when you don't see it in anybody else, when it feels like for all of my efforts at work, no one wants to come with me to church. For all of my efforts at home, no one listens when I talk about Jesus. For all my efforts with my friends, I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm doing it for no reason. You're not doing it for no reason. You're doing it because you're being faithful to the Lord. Remember Jeremiah, the weeping prophet had one convert everybody else rejected Jeremiah through his entire ministry the weeping prophet had no one to listen to him except we think his scribe that's it you are not called to enjoy the fruit now but to enjoy the fruit then and so remember there is there's something precious about faithfulness especially faithfulness when you can't see the outcome or the result immediately and that's the the priest the lineage of Zadok is they they just kept going they kept showing up at temple they kept serving no one else in Israel they were all off into idolatry even their brothers of Levi but the people of Zadok continued to serve be like Zadok in this world in these dark times keep the charge keep the charge hold fast I, I love what uh, Dr. Carl Truman said. We, we watched the video if you were at the round tables on Sunday and that was a, a really precious time. But we watched a video by this um, British professor, Carl Truman, and at the very end of the video, which was hard to hear because the music was way too loud, uh, he said the following. He said, the times are dark, but they are not as dark as they have been for many Christians of previous generations. And the promises hold good. We have been given the privilege of carrying the torch of truth. In dark times, yes, but we should be thankful for that. I went back and re-listened to it just so I could write that down and repeat it. I don't know about you, but Sunday when we're listening to Dr. Carl and he's speaking. And the guy is so so gentle and, and so you know intentional in his words, but not—he wasn't flashy or anything. But he's speaking, and, and at the end of that thing, I was lit up. I was so encouraged, you know. A couple of nights, a couple of days before the election of yesterday, and maybe you watched that whole thing through, and you were just kind of going, <sighs> maybe you were cheering big time. If so, could we talk afterwards? But. Um, <laughs> I, I was discouraged, you know, yesterday, watching it through, and I, I get kind of crazy. Cheryl knows this, when, when the elections happened that day, you know, I'm, I'm checking the app every few minutes, and I had it on TV, and I'm just kind of watching. It's like it's it's like it's a Seahawks playing or something, you know. Hey, 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 there's another one. Oh, no, we're down a percent, you know, crazy. But Sunday carried me all the way through to tonight. I just kept thinking, it, it may get darker. In fact, it probably will. We have a torch, and we are privileged as priests of God and of Christ Jesus to bear the torch, even here in the darkness. Keep the charge. Be like Zadok. Don't just be like Levi or even like Aaron. Be like Zadok. Hold fast. Because the truth is in the millennial kingdom, by the grace of God, all who call on the name of Jesus will, yes, be saved. But just as there's a distinction in the priesthood, there will be a distinction, I believe, among believers, the priesthood of believers. Just as there are those who are of Levi, they will be in the kingdom, they will enjoy the millennial kingdom, they'll even be able to serve in the house of the Lord, but they will not go into the holy place like Sadok for you and for me. Man, so many will be there and so many will enjoy the kingdom, but not as much as others, not as much as others. What do you talk about, Rick? Listen, there are those who cave in and those who hold fast. There are believers who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. And I don't know how God's grace is gonna be meted out in the end, but I think it's gonna surprise all of us. There are gonna be people there that were like, really, you? And they're gonna be looking at you going, really, you? But there are gonna be people saved, but who kind of caved in, stayed home, didn't share Jesus, did the church thing somewhat, but they believed and God is gonna grant salvation by faith in his grace. But there are others who don't cave in to culture, who don't shrink back, who don't give up. They hold fast. Both the saved and those who are saved and held fast, both are there, but only one is crowned. Revelation 3.11, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. Why? Because he's not gonna want to. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to put a cap on it, Revelation 22.12, Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what? According to what he's done. According to what he's done. That is not an issue of salvation. Jesus isn't saying, I will render to those who deserve salvation, salvation. No, you have salvation by faith in Jesus, period. But I will render gifts depending on, on how you held fast, depending on your service, depending on what you did while you were there. You're saved, welcome home. But for some, here's a crown. I won't get into it tonight, but the New Testament actually details five crowns, five unique, different crowns that are gifted to people. Well, I don't need a crown. Well, you're gonna have one less thing to worship with then because we see the elders in Revelation 4 and 5 casting their crowns before the throne in a great, glorious act of worship. The encouragement to you is simply this. Serve him from the love of your heart. Give all that you've got, whatever you've got. Don't worry about the outcome. Don't worry if others are there showing up, seeing what you're doing, applauding it or not. Put all that aside. Just be faithful to Jesus in your home, in your workplace, in your life. Hold fast. Hold the torch of the truth. And you will not only not cave in, but you will be extra blessed as well. Well, with all that in mind, we come to chapter 22. And chapter 22, now all the land has been given, and we have a fascinating story that is incredibly applicable to where we are today in the church and in the world. Chapter 22 begins the final section of Israel's rite of passage in the book of Joshua. Yes, we're already there. Chapters one through four, we called passage as they entered into the promise. Chapters five through 12, we called perseverance as they contended for the promise and all those battles and wars and fights. And then chapters 13 through 21 was part three where we, we called it possession. And that's what we've just seen, the possession of the land and the maintaining the promise as they're given their allotments and they move into their places throughout the land. Part four Chapters 22 through 24, incredibly encouraging. We're calling preservation. Preservation because now we get into holding fast to the promise. Here's the thing. Preservation can be precarious. Preservation can be precarious. When we get to the place, battle's won, settled, uh, stable, established with Jesus. We are now living the victorious Christian life. We've crossed the Jordan, fought the big fights, and, and we're part of the deal. And we know we are. And now it is just hold fast, preserve the truth, hold up the torch. But it can be difficult. Once we've made passage, we need to understand, and this is part of the whole picture we've been looking at, the enemy's not done. And you know that. I know that, you can have glorious weeks, months, years and then just get hammered because the enemy is not done. And his most vicious work, brothers and sisters, it is from within, it's always from within. We've talked about how we can weather persecution from without, when the non-Christian world comes at the church, bring it on, it just makes us grow. The more we get persecuted from without, the more we just spread out and share the gospel and we get encouraged. Because as Jesus said, blessed are you when people persecute you. When it comes from outside, when it comes from within, that's when it's tough. And we've looked at the fact that false prophets and false teachers will come up from among us and they have for 2000 years in the church, they've showed up and they've tried to lead people astray one way or the other. But there's something that is even I think more damaging than false teachers, false prophets. And it's what we would call false assumptions, rumors, gossip, accusations that are unfounded, but we don't know. These are the things we all know that divide relationships, families, churches, these false things that get spread among us or, or, or get dreamed up or, or we start to believe or hear or listen to. It's when someone comes to you and says, hey, listen, so and is in a real mess of life and I need you to pray with me for them. Let me tell you about it. And it turns into a half hour of gossip and 30 seconds of prayer. This happens all the time and is a, a danger and I believe it's why chapter 22 is included for us to understand. So as we close this section or come into the closing section of the book, still applying it to victorious Christian living, we get a warning by example of how easy it is for misunderstanding to tear apart marriages, people, families, and yes, churches. Watch this. Then Joshua, verse twenty-one of chapter 22, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, you have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day but you have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers. As he spoke to them, therefore, turn now, go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only, he says, be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, which is what? To love the Lord your God And walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. That's a, verse five is a five point sermon right there. Could have saved that for a Sunday morning, but I'm just giving it to you right now. Love the Lord, your God, walk in all his ways, keep his commandments, hold fast to him, serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That is with all your spirit, man your spirit woman, and with all your soul man, soul woman, with all of your thought processes and and who you are fully, serve the Lord. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now, to the one half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua gave a possession among their brothers westward beyond the Jordan. So when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them. Verse eight, and said to them, Return to your tents with great riches, with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, with very many clothes. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers, and the sons of Reuben, sons of Gad, half tribe of Manasseh, returned home and departed from the sons of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, to the land of their possession which they have possessed according to the command of the Lord through Moses." And this is all good, it's a beautiful time. Now, as as noted, it's been a seven-year campaign. So understand, as Joshua is now releasing Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, they've been fighting for seven years. Their wives, their children, all of their land holdings on the other side of the Jordan has been awaiting them for seven long years. That's amazing, that's faithfulness. Now, I don't know if, if these three tribes or two and a half tribes, if they swapped out reinforcements like squadrons on military deployment, maybe that's how they did it, that, that a certain number stayed and then they would switch out and others would come in to fight you know, and, and relieve them so that they could go home and be with their families. I don't know, or if they just stuck with it seven years fighting all the way through. Either way. Reuben Gad and half Manasseh earned their stripes, showed their faithfulness. They kept the promise and they fought alongside their band of brothers. So for all the negative stuff that we have sometimes pointed out by example, that they stayed on the other side of the Jordan, they stayed with their brothers and fought for seven years. That's a complete commitment. <laughs> they were faithful. You know, faithfulness doesn't produce relationship, but it proves relationship. Let me say that to you again, because as Christians, that's a vital uh, understanding in our faith. Faithfulness does not produce relationship, but it does prove relationship. If you get that backwards in Christian living, it becomes hard work, but if you get it right, it's grace, it's grace. Relationship begins with Jesus by grace, but then Jesus says, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we know Reuben Gad and half of Manasseh loved their brothers? Because they kept with it. They were faithful, they stood, they fought, they hung in there. In the same way, I don't keep the commandments of Jesus to produce good standing as one of his followers. See, Lord, see what I did? You note that? Check it in my book. Make sure you keep track. No, no, no. I do what I do because I love him. Because the relationship is already there and it is proven in the behavior. Faithful obedience proves that I really do love him. Rather than me just saying it, if Reuben Gad and half Manasseh said, yeah, we're here to fight. We love you guys. We're with you, bros. And then they departed and went back across the other side. Clearly they didn't love their brothers but they stood and they fought and the faithfulness bore them out. So before we go any further, Reuben Gad and half Manasseh have a proven relationship. They have a track record with their Israelite brothers and mileage matters. Mileage matters. I would trust less, far more than anyone who's been here at the bridge a few months. Why? Mileage matters. We've been walking for 19 years in this fellowship together. Mileage matters. Track records are telling. Faithfulness reveals faith and it should deserve the benefit of the doubt. Even in the church, that's not always the case. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now I read that to you because there are two things going on in that in that statement. It's not because of position, understand this. It's not, hey, if someone's an elder in your church, you're not allowed to accuse them of anything. That's not what Paul's saying. Do not receive an accusation, a slander, a comment, or or, or a a question of integrity against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So what Paul's saying is explicitly root out false testimony by having multiple witnesses. You're gonna claim something against a leader in your church fellowship, you better make sure there's more than one witness. So it can't just be someone's trumped up charge against one of those leaders. But implicitly, by referring to elders, by using the word presbyteros, Paul is pointing to long-term, proven, faithful men. Don't accept an accusation against someone who is a long-term, faithful, proven follower of Jesus you better have some witnesses because that guy's got some mileage. He, he, he should have, he's got a reputation of integrity and of service. And yet right here with these two and a half tribes with a seven year recognition or reputation of faithfulness in the fight, this is impressive, this is outstanding You would think that their standing with their brothers in Israel would be absolutely secure, but sadly, note this, past performance evaporates quickly in the rumor mill of offense. When rumors start to fly, it is amazing how quickly we forget about a person's proven faithfulness. Paul says in the church, don't do it, don't do it. You cut some people some slack, you give the benefit of the doubt. Proverbs 18, 19 says a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. Oh, that is so true. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Ever been there? I mean, think back in your life. H- have you ever said, but, but you know me. You know I wouldn't do that. Why would you say that about me? We've known each other a long time. How can you accuse me of such a thing? Look at my history. Ever been there? See, I have a few times. Now, now the reality is what the Lord always shows me is he says, yeah, look at your history, Rick. Okay, no, I don't wanna do that, Lord. But have you ever been in that place where you thought, man, I, I thought I had proven my love for you. I thought I had proven my faithfulness to you. I thought that that was settled, and now you're accusing me of this? Watch what happens, verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. Hmm, what are they doing? Do you know? I mean, just stopping right there, do you know why, what they're doing? You know what that's about if you haven't read ahead? I don't, we just know they did it. Verse 11, and the sons of Israel heard it and said, behold, sons of Reuben and the and sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. Note the first words there in verse 11, and the sons of Israel heard. And that's the beginning of the problem. They heard. It's hearsay. Most had not seen this. Most were not visually or, or you know, witnesses of it. They didn't know why it was built. They knew nothing about it. All they did was hear That they built an altar over there by the Jordan. Gossip, my friends, is like gasoline on the fire of false assumption. A false assumption is stated by someone and then it's repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and it just explodes. And that's what's happening right here in this chapter. I'd really like to get the name of the numbskull who poured the gasoline and lit the flame. Who's the guy who first said, Did you hear? Of course, if I heard and told you, then I'd be gossiping too, so we won't go there. That'd be hearsay. But hearing the Lord, listen to me, hearing the Lord is the beginning of squelching hearsay. Let me say that again. Hearing the Lord is the beginning of squelching hearsay. That is to stop gossip, start with hearing the Lord. Someone comes up to you and they say, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? You go, you know what? I don't need to. I don't need to know. But I'll pray with you for them. Don't give me the facts. Don't give me what you've heard. I don't need that. But I'll pray for my brother and my sister. I need to hear from the Lord. Bible says, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It starts there, why? Because the more I love him, the more I'm gonna love my brothers and sisters. And if I'm listening to the Lord and loving the Lord, then even when hearsay creeps up and gossip begins to spread, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it. I want to hear from the Lord. Leviticus 16, 19, I'm going to give this to you in the King James translation because I just love how it reads, Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. We don't need talebearers. We need people who hear the Lord. Proverbs 6, verse 16 tells us very seriously that there are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. You Bible students know that when it's written that way, number seven is the, the piece de resistance. It is the cap, it's the worst. This is the thing God hates more than anything else. And the six are haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and number seven, here's the big one, one who spreads strife among brothers. God hates that. He hates it. Verse 12, the hearsay has begun. When the sons of Israel heard the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. These are their brothers who fought with them for seven years and it takes one little lit flame of gossip and all of Israel is ready to go to war with their brothers. Unbelievable. Then the sons of Israel sent to the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him 10 chiefs, one chief for each father's household from each of the tribes of Israel, and each one of them was the head of his father's household among the thousands of Israel. Well, at least they were wise enough to send a delegation, right? So they didn't just go and attack their brothers, so I'll give them that. There's, there's credit on both sides as we go here. They did send a delegation, but they are already loaded for bear. They're ready to go as they come and you will see. But I gotta pause for just a moment. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go show him his fault. How? In private. You go mano y mano, one-on-one. You don't go to someone else. You don't go and spread it around. You don't take a cadre of the 10 leaders of the tribes of Israel with you. You go one-on-one to your brother who has sinned and you show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Case closed, it's done. It doesn't go any further. Praise the Lord, that's how it should be. I wish it was that way. You know, it's not. Sadly in the church, it's not often how it works. We normally skip part one and go right to part two. If he does not listen to you, take one or more witnesses with you. Because we know there's power in numbers, so we'll go get other people. Jesus says, wait, did, did you go one-on-one first? Did you deal with the individual yourself? Do that first. Now, if he won't listen, Out of love for your brother, yes, then get witnesses, not someone you told, but someone else who knows because they've witnessed it, and take them and confront your brother in love. You're seeking restoration here because by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, Jesus says, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And Jesus lays out, this is the Jesus standard for his church regarding someone who sinned against you. Okay, what about gossip? What about hearsay or rumor? Listen, establishing the truth always follows hearing the Lord. Very first thing we need to do when we hear a gossipy thing or a rumor or anything is pray. Don't go even try to figure it out. Just stop and go, Lord, I need your wisdom here. I'm concerned for Doug because I've heard all kinds of things about how he's handling life. I'm kidding. But Lord, give me wisdom with my brother so that when I go to him, I hear his heart and I hear the truth. Start by hearing the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, not the words of some nutcase who says, did you see the altar out there? Listen to Jesus. Giving our brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt before we raise suspicion because of back fence babble. I, I saw that today. I was just looking up some, some different words and I saw back fence babble. I thought, that's good. That's, you know, you're, you're leaning over the back fence and your neighbor's on the other side. Did you hear what uh, so-and-so's doing down the street with his Christmas lights? Yeah, pretty crazy. Just saying. And off you go and now it starts to stir. And so we need to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Well, verse 15, so they show up And they came to the sons of Reuben, to the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Galad, and they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel? Hang on a second. We don't even know what this altar means. We know nothing about an unfaithful act. We just know they built something there by the river. We don't know why. That's why I said they're loaded for bear. They're ready to shoot. What is this unfaithful act you've committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? Is not, the, is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. These guys are freaking out. They are upset. They are filled with words of attack and offense. But reading between the lines, and to be fair to the West Side gang, this is really a West Side story, kind of a, a chapter here. Because you got the West Side gang versus the East Side gang, right? The West Side gang is deeply fearful of a return to idolatry. Which is why they mention the sin of Peor. What was the sin of Peor? It's back on the plains of Moab remember what happened before they came into the land and the Moabites at the the teaching of Balaam, the Moabites began to try and mix and send their cute gals in front of the Israelite men and they started to get together and they were led into the feasts and into idolatry and into sexual immorality right there on the edge of the promised land, the sin of Peor. Do you remember who put an end to the plague that came of that sin? He was a man who saw a, a couple, an Israelite man and a Moabite woman walk right in front of Moses and the elders and walk right into a tent to do their business. And this guy jumped up and grabbed a spear and ran into the tent and speared them through. It was a sin kebab. Do you remember the story? Guy's name was Phineas. Guess who's leading the delegation? Phineas. Phineas. They are worried that idolatry is about to ignite right there in the land. They are scared to death. They lost 24,000 Israelites that day or back at the sin of Peor. They don't wanna see this happen again. So to, to their side, they are fearful of what might happen. By the way, do you remember what God's reaction was to Phinehas sparing the two of them? Just in case you're not clear, Numbers 25 verse 12, therefore say, Behold, I will give him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. And by the way, guess who is in the direct line of Phinehas? Zadok. It's the same lineage where we see a fierce, passionate, faithful heart. We see those who do not give up on the Lord but continue to serve, even if it means spearing sin straight through. And that's what Phineas did. So now Phineas is leading this group. And that's good. And we recognize there is a moral outrage here at what they think is going on. But again, they only think. They don't know. Listen, there is a subtle satanic scheme in play here and he works the same thing in the church today, he will find areas of our moral sensitivity and he will try to offend us into dividing from brothers and sisters. He'll say, aren't you morally outraged when you hear about this? You can't possibly fellowship with him or her or them anymore because of what you've heard. How do we know it's true? We hear all kinds of things about what other churches are doing or have done and the devil would have us divide, oh, we can't be of them. We can't do what they're doing. Clearly, they're off the rails. I still come to a very simple standard. Do they love Jesus? Do they preach Jesus? Well, then I'm not so ready to depart from them. They may be actually even in error. I guarantee we are on some things but we divide so quickly because we are morally outraged and Satan loves it. And the point is, in my opinion, reading the story, neither the east side gang or the west side gang are at fault, but hearsay is the harbinger of division. Verse 19. If, however, they continue, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. In other words, don't be over there, be over here. If if the problem is over there, and you're being led into idolatry, then stick with us, because we're right. (laughs) We're righteous. And all you need to do is be around us, and you'll be okay. I know I'm reading it a little bit, but that's okay. And then he says, Only do not rebel, verse 19 continues, against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Akon, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban? And wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity? And here's their fear. If you guys do this, this is on all of us. This is on all of us. They are legitimately afraid of a severe judgment, and fear is often embedded in our moral offense. I, I this caught me in in processing this week. When I get morally offended, sometimes it's because I'm afraid. It's fear, and we need to understand it's fear of loss of standing. If I'm aligned with them and their sin becomes apparent, which I know is wrong, and and, and I haven't made a clear distinction between myself and them, well, then it's gonna get on me. Loss of standing, loss of position. For some believers, loss of salvation. If I'm not morally outraged and divide because of it, I, I could lose my very salvation. You know what the Bible says? I love this. First John chapter 4 verse 18. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. Are you afraid you're going to be punished in the fires of hell or do you know by the grace of Jesus Christ you will be saved? If I know that I am saved, fear's out the window. So now fear does not drive my moral outrage. You know what does instead? Love does. If I'm morally outraged at the sin of a brother or sister, I'm not afraid of it getting on me. I'm concerned for them. And now I come with a voice of love rather than a voice of attack because I'm offended. Is this making sense to you guys? Because to me, this this is huge. We need to remove the fear from our moral offense so that when we are offended by something, we come with the voice of love. Jesus Christ frees us. From ever fearing the loss of our salvation, so we don't have to take moral stands to protect ourselves. We take moral stands to honor God and love people. And it's a totally different attitude when it comes to sin and immorality in the world. But the West Side Gang seems more concerned with their own hides than they are with their own brothers. Verse 21 Then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh answered and spoke to the heads. Of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. Stop right there. Wow. Do you know what they just said, what they just repeated twice? They just called out three names of God. The mighty one is El, God, Elohim, the Lord, Yahweh. They go, El, Elohim, Yahweh, El, Elohim, Yahweh. It's almost as if they already had a sense of his triune nature. I think they did. I think there was something in the early teachings of Israel and we see hints of it throughout the Hebrew scriptures that they already had a sense that the Lord your God, Elohim, plural, the Lord is one. And the word one is of course, which means a plurality. They already had a sense of this. And so they cry out, El Elohim, Yahweh, El Elohim, Yahweh. Asaph, the psalmist, does the same thing. Psalm 50, verse one, the mighty one, God, the Lord, El Elohim, Yahweh has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shown forth. God who is one is El Elohim, Yahweh. And they say he knows and may Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or if an unfaithful act against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built us an altar to turn away from following Yahweh, or if to offer a burnt offering or grain offerings on it, or if to offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself require it. In other words, may we become the sacrifice. If we've been doing this, May God hold us solely responsible, verse 24, but truly, and here we get to the reason finally, we have done this out of concern for a reason, saying, in time to come, your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with Yahweh, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you. Actually, the Lord didn't make them a, make it a border, they had, but, but, but we'll let that slide. This has been a border between us, the sons of Reuben, sons of Gad. So they may say, you have no portion in the Lord. So your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. And that's the fear of the East side gang. The West side gang is fearing for their moral security. And now the East side gang is fearing they're gonna be cut off. They're gonna be forgotten. They're gonna be left out of Israel. So what they do? They built a witness, verse 26. Therefore we said, let us build an altar, not for burning offering or sacrifice. That's not the kind of altar this is. Verse 27, rather it shall be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings so that your sons will not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion with the Lord. Therefore, we said, it shall also come about if they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, then we shall say, see the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offering or sacrifice, rather, it is a witness Between us and you, it's a monument. This is a monument to the real altar at Shiloh. We just made one here to remind you, we're part of the deal. A witness between us and you, verse 29, far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord this day by building an altar for burnt offering, for grain offering, for sacrifice, besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. So, When Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. We have gone from hearsay to hearing from the source. And now the truth is out, and they go, oh, well, that's kind of cool. Okay, put the armor away. sheath the sword. It's good. We're all right. It's amazing, tiny misunderstanding, and it led to almost an all-out war between the sons of Israel here at the beginning of the land. And Phinehas, verse 31, son of Eleazar, the priest said to the sons of Reuben and sons of Gad and to the sons of Manasseh, today we know, I love this, that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord, And then Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priest and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben and from the sons of Gad from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the sons of Israel and brought back word to them. The word, uh, it pleased the sons of Israel and the sons of Israel blessed God. And they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. A Few quick things to note and we'll be done tonight. Number one, there is but one right side to every conflict. One side, one side that's always right. And it's neither your side or their side, it's his side. Remember what Joshua encountered there in Joshua chapter five, just outside of Jericho, when he came up and he saw this man with a sword unsheathed and he came up before him and he said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, rather, I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what is my Lord to say to his servant? You remember what he said? Take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground. He's standing before Jesus. And Jesus answered, when I say, Jesus, are you for me or for my enemy? Jesus says, nope. I'm for the Lord, I'm for me. Are, are you with me? That's always the better question. Romans 2.11, Paul says, there is no partiality with God. He does not play favorites. He doesn't play one side against the other. West side story will not be played in heaven because it's not one side against the other. And so I love that they named the altar Ed. That's the Hebrew word for witness, Ed. We built us an altar and we called him Ed. So this is Ed the altar. And they intended it as a witness, again, to testify of a unified Israel. This was a a testimony of unity for all of Israel between Reuben, Gad, half Manasseh, and the rest of the tribes. That they could see that and go, we are one tribe. Even though there's a river between us, we are one people, one tribe. That's how they intended it on both sides of the Jordan. Psalm 133, verse one says, behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. So it's a priestly unity coming down upon the edges of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. Get this, note this, in that Psalm of unity, Hermon is on the east side, Zion is on the west side. This is unity, folks, and unity is good. Though a river runs between us, we are called to be unified in the Lord. So while there is but one right side to every conflict, secondly, there is but one witness of unity. There is one witness of unity. And here is the one thing I think Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh got wrong. I don't think it was a sinful act. I don't think they got it wrong, you know, maliciously, but they got it wrong. They got confused that God needed another witness. There was already a witness. As to the unity of all Israel, the witness was at Shiloh. The witness was in the tabernacle. The witness was the Ark of the Covenant and the altar. That was to stand as the witness of the unification of all of Israel. We don't need another altar a monument to the altar, we have the altar. And the altar speaks of the witness. The altar is the testimony in the church. What is our witness? What is our altar of testimony? It's the cross, the cross. cross of Jesus Christ is our singular only altar. It's the only one we need. We don't need monuments of it. We don't need more versions of it. There's just the cross, the cross of Christ. You know, we can divide over all kinds of things, traditions and values and self-imposed principles and and policies and procedures. We can debate worship styles. You know, we can get into the new feelsy stuff or the old crusty stuff, whatever you like. Someone says, you just call the hymns crusty. No, actually I was referring to the Gregorian chants, which we could bring those back if you'd like. But it's the cross that matters. In all of these different things that would normally divide people, it's the cross that matters. It's why we come to the table every time we gather to bring us back to the cross. That is our witness. That's our testimony of unity. It was to the divided Corinthian church that Paul said, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. For I've been, in, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people. So there's a little bit of hearsay going on here. That there are quarrels among you. Is that true? I love that Paul goes right to the source. I've heard this. Is it true? He's not armed. He's not loaded for bear. He's actually bringing the word of God. But I wanna know, is is this what's going on? Now I mean this, each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void Verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. That is our altar of unity. That's the witness that we are one people. It is the cross. Chapter two, verse two, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I'll say this, the cross demolishes every issue of division. If we can come together at the cross, we may have different styles of, of worship. We may have different you know, opinions on all kinds of things. But man, when we come to the foot of the cross, there is unity there. That's our witness. That's our testimony that we are one people before God. So there's but one right side to every conflict, his side. There's but one witness of unity, the cross. And finally, last thing, there is but one unifier. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there's one God, the Father from whom are all things and we for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we through him, Jesus. So the cross unifies us and Jesus erases all sides. There's only one Lord. There's gonna be all kinds of denominations uh, represented in heaven. And I'm guaranteeing you that the Baptists and the Methodists are gonna be worshiping the same Jesus. And it's gonna be a beautiful time because we're gonna finally shed all of those old traditions and simply be before the Lord and we will see the only wounds that are to be seen in heaven, those on Jesus reminding us of the cross and we will be a unified people. So Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of an inheritance. And then Paul says, it is the Lord that you serve. Notice this in chapter 22, 27 times across 19 verses, both gangs, East and West, appeal to the name of the Lord. This is one of the big bright upsides in this kafafel is that everybody's appealing to the name of the Lord. Now, sometimes we do that because we think it'll bolster our side. Well, the Lord told me, oh yeah, well, the Lord told me but I don't think they're doing that. I think they're really trying to appeal to the name of God, even the fact that this whole thing ends with the altar they called Ed because the witness is, verse 34, that the Lord is God. They're still trying to stay focused on the Lord. Man, bless both sides of the Jordan. They're focused on the Lord. The church is not about you and it is not about me. It's not about us or about them any more than Israel was west side versus east side. It's all about the Lord. It is all about the Lord. Listen one last time to Joshua's admonition to his east side brothers before they even left. Verse five, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. If I'm looking at you, you looking at me, we are sure to eventually divide. But if we're both looking at the Lord, we will be unified. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, Paul said, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And how do we do that? i tell you what, one of the best ways to do it, we gather at the altar of witness. We gather at the altar of the cross. We remain unified around the name of Jesus Christ where the Lord is God. Amen?